Welcome to What the Health Podcast, where we help you lead a happier and healthier life by offering a wide range of health and wellness news and insights. I'm John Salak, your host. If you like what you hear, be sure to visit our news site at wellwellusa.com and sign up for our weekly news blasts. Now, let's get started with the show. Getting a handle on proper nutrition is a challenge for almost everyone. Want proof? Look at the percentage of Americans who are obese, severely obese, diabetic, or pre-diabetic. It is both startling and terrifying at the same time. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention report that almost 40% of Americans are obese, with almost 10% suffering from severe obesity. The CDC also notes that an estimated 40 million Americans are diabetic while perhaps another 100 million are pre-diabetic. All of this is a gateway to heart disease, strokes, cancers, and more. These challenges don't play favorites, attacking adult men and women almost equally. It is little wonder, then, that so many of us are constantly embracing diets as a way to shed pounds and enhance our health. More than half of Americans between 18 and 34 are on a diet in any given year, while almost 45% of all women embrace a weight loss plan annually. Even though the vast majority of these efforts fail to produce long-term weight loss, you can't fault anyone for wanting to shed pounds and improve their health. Women, however, may have even more reason than men to improve nutrition and lose weight as a means of offsetting the threat of diabetes and other issues that may surface with age. These challenges beg the question, what is the right diet? Well, there's no simple answer. It will vary from person to person for all sorts of reasons. However, one dieting approach that is getting increased attention is intermittent fasting or time-restricted eating. There are different ways to apply this approach, but they all essentially focus on not eating for extended periods, perhaps 12, 16, 24, or even 36 hours at a time. The recognition and popularity of fasting have grown substantially in the last 5 to 10 years, although exact statistics on how many people are fasting are hard to come by. Nonetheless, some estimates claim it is the most popular diet in the U.S. right now, with maybe 10% of adults trying it. Proponents claim it can help people lose weight, lower their blood pressure, improve cholesterol levels, control blood sugar, and much more. But does it work? Is it right for everyone? Are there risks? What's the best way to start? These are all questions any sensible person needs to ask. Don't worry. What the Health has brought in an expert to serve up some answers. Welcome to our guest interview on this edition of our Well, Well, What the Health podcast. We're going to be talking in this episode with Megan Ramos, who, among many things, is an expert on fasting and intermittent fasting, and recently just produced a book called The Essential Guide to Intermittent Fasting for Women. And we're going to explore exactly what that means, why it's important, what the link to women is specifically is related to fasting in general. So we'd like to welcome Megan to our podcast. Hey, Megan, how are you doing? Hi, John. Thank you so much for having me on today. And just to let everyone know, Megan just told me she's from Canada and she's just moved to the U.S. and she's pretty happy with it so far. Correct, Megan? 
Yeah, I'm not going to complain about the weather here. Okay. <laughs> All right, sounds good. Sounds good. Though, in case anyone's wondering, Megan also told me she is not into fishing, even though she's from Canada, but she is a big hockey fan. So just want to make sure her bona fides are in place. So let's start off with that. And Megan also is the co-founder of the Fasting Method. And you can visit the Fasting Method at thefastingmethod.com. So her experience and her expertise goes much wider than just fasting for women or intermittent fasting. And we'll get into that a little later. We'll also provide contact information. So anyone with additional questions or want to learn more about Megan's practice can get in touch with her. So Megan, for the uninformed, fasting has gotten a tremendous amount of publicity of late or in the last five or 10 years. But for the uninformed, can you explain what intermittent fasting is and how it may differ from other types of fasting just as a starting point? Yes. So you're really electing to choose to go for a period of time without consuming food. You can consume some things. You consume water, any temperature, flat, mineral, carbonated. You can get exceptionally wild with your water combinations. You can have things like tea or coffee. So your mornings do not have to be miserable while you're fasting. You can still have your morning coffee. And you can have some additional support from something like bone broth or a low-carb vegetable-based broth just to get you in some sodium and some electrolytes throughout the day when you are fasting. Now, for our purposes, we primarily fast individuals to help them reverse metabolic syndrome or lose body fat. So we help a lot of people reverse their type 2 diabetes coming off of insulin or help women like postmenopausal women or young women with PCOS really be able to lose weight and reverse the any hormonal imbalances that they have. So for us, that means we actually lean into these fasting fluids for a good 24 hours, two to three times a week. So you'll see nowadays words like 16-8 or 18-6 splash across the cover of magazines at your local supermarket when you're checking out. Those, a lot of people believe, are fasting. And in some sense, they're absolutely fasting. But they're not necessarily what we consider to be intermittent fasting. They're just daily time-restricted eating protocols. So when we talk about intermittent fasting, you know, we're skipping breakfast and lunch two to three times a week. Sometimes we may even skip dinner two to three times a week. And it's a really therapeutic strategy to tackle hormonal imbalances. And it typically takes around six months of this therapeutic approach to have the correct hormonal balancing occur at the end for your desired outcome, whether that's to not be dependent on diabetic medications or to get things balanced. So as a postmenopausal woman, you can lose weight and sustain that weight loss during that period of time. So we look at it as a therapeutic approach for about six months. And then after that, we revert to the time-restricted eating protocols, sort of those two-meal-a-day strategies you see on the cover of a lot of newspapers these days. You've done a great job explaining it, but I, I do want to get in a little more detail. So what is 16 slash 8, 8 slash 16? I know it differs from intermittent fasting, but can you explain what they're driving for and 
just line it up more clearly against or more succinctly against intermittent fasting? Absolutely. So time restricted eating is where you limit the number of hours a day that you eat. So when there's three popular protocols for this, one is the 14 hour fast. And it's where you eat breakfast, lunch and dinner. And you don't snack in between dinner and you then have about a 10 hour window from when you finish dinner to when you have breakfast the next morning. A 16-8 fast is essentially skipping one meal a day and just eating two meals within an eight hour window. So most people, especially in North America, our lives are so hectic and busy. We tend to skip breakfast. That's fine. Usually breakfast foods are highly processed foods anyways. So people wake up, they'll have their coffee or their tea. They might have some broth, some water, and they won't eat until lunchtime. So this generates about a 16-hour window from when they had dinner the night before until they've had lunch the following day. And then they eat their two meals, their lunch and dinner within that eight-hour window. So if they eat lunch at noon, they try to complete having their dinner by 8 p.m. 16-8 and the 18-6 fast that you see splashed across magazine covers, they're the same thing. It just depends on whether you eat lunch a bit earlier in the day or a bit later in the day, but you still are skipping one meal. Typically, that's breakfast. And you're eating your lunch and dinner either no more than six hours apart or no longer than eight hours apart, depending on when you eat your lunch. Is it fair then that when you define intermittent fasting or explain it, and you're going to define it again for me in a second, that as you say, you're going to have normal days, three meals a day on certain days, and then on certain days, you'll skip a meal. Is that correct? Or did I not get that right? No, that, that's correct. Sometimes you might skip one meal and do sort of 16 or 18 hours of fasting. Sometimes you might skip two meals and do 24 hours of fasting. And some days you might skip all three meals and fast until breakfast the following morning. And that's 36 hours of fasting. And how do you know what to do in terms of the meals you skip or don't skip? I mean, is there a plan for each person or does it vary? Yeah, so it does vary depending on the person's goals. So if they're struggling with metabolic health issues, like a lot of weight around their midsection, diabetes, high blood pressure, fatty liver, polycystic ovary syndrome, then we typically try to fast for a length of time that really helps suppress the hormone insulin from being produced and unnecessarily in response to food. So for those individuals, we try to do the 24 or the 36 hour fast, but we don't always start there. I encourage people, you know, if you're working with someone like us, that's helpful. We can provide guidance. If you're out there trying to do it on your own, start with just 14 hours, you know, eat your breakfast, lunch, and dinner, try to cut out your snacks, and then you can cut out breakfast or you can cut out dinner and graduate into sort of the 16 or 18 hour fast. And then if you're not getting results that you want, then you can turn up the fasting dial a notch and skip two meals that day doing a 24 hour fast instead. Now, I don't mean to sound rude, but somebody on the other, hearing this might say, well, all you're telling people to do is eat less. What's the difference between fasting and just simply eating less? Yeah, that's a good question. So the 14, 16, and 18-hour fasts, they're not things that we typically do. They're just good structured eating days to maintain good health. 
But when we do, say, the 24, the 36-hour fast, what we do with our diabetic patients or, say, postmenopausal women is we fast long enough to suppress insulin levels. Now, what's the big difference? So if you're doing a calorie restriction diet, you're reducing your calories, say, by 30%, right? So say your household income was slashed by 30%. You might overspend at first. You might have commitments to Netflix subscriptions or car payments, and you might go into some debt. But eventually, if you're smart, you'll figure out how to save that 30%. So you won't be going into debt every month. You'll make cuts to certain expenses like entertainment. Maybe you won't go to the grocery store and buy whatever you want. Maybe you'll just buy what's on sale. Maybe you'll take public transit instead of driving to save on gasoline. But eventually you'll figure it out. So you stop going into debt every month and then you'll be able to sustain. Our bodies do the same thing. If you reduce your caloric intake by 30%, at first our metabolism's running high and we overspend metabolic dollars, if you think of calories as a metabolic currency. But then what happens over time is our body can't keep overspending, and what it does is it slows down functions. It cuts back spending to the respiratory system, to the reproductive system, to the cardiovascular system, so on and so forth. So this is why people, they'll lose weight at first, and then they stop losing weight. The body adapts. But what also happens is the metabolic rate slows down. In medicine, we do something called randomized control trials. They're considered to be the gold standard in medical research. There's about a dozen of them that have been published since 2016. And each one of them shows that when you do calorie restriction diets, we see a clinically significant reduction in resting metabolic rate. But when we do true alternate daily fasting, so these 24, 36-hour fasts that I speak of, we see no change in resting metabolic rate. Why is that? Well, if you're going for an entire day, say, you know, I ate dinner on Sunday and I'm not going to eat again until Tuesday breakfast, we're giving our body nothing, maybe like 30 calories from a cup of coffee, literally nothing our body can survive on. So what happens is we have this hormonal response and nervous system response in the body when we fast. We're giving it next to zero dollars when we're fasting to function off of. So our sympathetic nervous system becomes activated and produces these really cool counter-regulatory hormones. These counter-regulatory hormones help us liberate our fat stores to provide our bodies with fuel. And they also produce, one of them is human growth hormone, which helps us protect our lean mass from deteriorating. And another one helps us produce glucose if we need it while we're in a fasted state. So when we look at the data, we show that we're able to sort of maintain that resting metabolic rate by activating the sympathetic nervous system. And we're also able to maintain our lean mass. So these randomized control trials, not only did they show that this nervous system and hormonal response and fasting was superior for maintaining an individual's resting metabolic rate, it also showed that we see less lean mass loss in people who lose weight through fasting versus losing weight through calorie restriction diets. We've also seen from the data too that we get more fat loss as well as abdominal fat loss 
in the fasting groups than in the calorie restriction groups. So it's really this hormonal response that we have in our response to giving our body zero calories or next to zero calories throughout this therapeutic fasting period. When you're fasting like this, your recommended fasting where you may be going for longer periods, should you be making up the calorie content on the days you're not eating? Absolutely not, because you're providing it from your own fat stores. Like If you think of our fat cells, our fat cells are literally just full of excess fuel. So that time you ate that extra slice of pizza when you knew you didn't need it, or that time you ate that extra donut when you got into work, all of this stuff that we don't utilize just gets put in our fat cells. Our fat cells store toxins and they store hormones. Mm -hmm. They're smart, tricky cells, but they also store a lot of this excess fuel. And our problem in this society is all we do is fuel ourselves. We wake up, we have breakfast, we have a sugary coffee beverage, we get into work, we have another sugary coffee beverage, we eat with our colleagues, we eat at our desk in the morning, we go for lunch, we eat at our desk in the afternoon, we get home from work and we eat, then we have dinner, then we sit on the couch and we eat. I mean, every day individuals are buying like 50 gallons of gasoline and only driving their bodies, you know, to a certain extent where we burn five of those gallons, right? So we end up storing all of this excess fuel. Your book is focused on women, on intermittent. What are some of the challenges women specifically face in terms of their current diet, whether it's calories or other issues that, you know, you're trying to address with intermittent fasting? Sure. It varies across the age spectrum. So for women who are still cycling, for example, we have different hormones that are dominant at different parts of the cycle for various reasons. So sometimes fasting is really easy at some parts. Sometimes it's very difficult at other parts of our cycle. Sometimes it should be done and can be done quite aggressively. And other times it's in our hormonal benefit to do less fasting. So a woman who has a cycle, it's divided into two phases, a follicular phase and a luteal phase. And in the first phase of the cycle, estrogen is dominant, which makes it really easy for us to fast and be very insulin sensitive and have great glucose metabolism. And in the second half of the cycle, this luteal phase, we have progesterone being dominant, which makes us very hungry, makes us more insulin resistant. So have worsened glucose metabolism. And a lot of women who are younger, who have polycystic ovary syndrome, which is essentially just type 2 diabetes of the ovaries, they already have low progesterone levels as it is. So they struggle to have normal cycles as a response. So we don't want to do anything hormonally that might minimize their own production of progesterone. So for a cycling woman, we have to vary the fasting approach and nutritional approach based on where they are in their cycle. For a woman going through hormonal changes, perimenopause or menopause, there's different nuances with fasting. There's still some hormonal-like fluctuations that do happen. So we tend to plan things sort of on a week by week or a couple of weeks at a time to just sort of see where we are with these different hormonal variations every month. 
For postmenopausal women, this is where it gets to be a lot of fun because postmenopausal women can fast just like men can fast. It's the one time, I think, in the female's life where we don't necessarily have to randomly or, or not randomly, but be very conscious, rather opposite of random and what we do compared to our male counterparts. So because we don't have these hormonal fluctuations anymore, we can really approach it aggressively if we want, very therapeutically, and we can get the same results as our male counterparts. The one problem, though, is usually a postmenopausal woman has a very poor metabolism from chronic dieting in one's lifetime. So sometimes we have to work on boosting the metabolic rate in order to sort of generate some good fat loss results. So we implement some strategic strategies at the beginning of one's journey just to help with that and to help optimize their metabolism with fasting first. And what type of strategies are those? Is that starting exercise or something else or diet? It's usually through nutrition, nutritional means, and through fasting strategies. So we'll put them on therapeutic fasts, usually a bit longer therapeutic fasts for about six weeks just to help get the ball going, to help boost their metabolism. We'll do a cyclical ketogenic diet in a lot of cases as well to help. And then, of course, we customize it to whether the individual is more plant-based or animal-based or sits somewhere in between. What are some of the myths or concerns that you come up against, either from patients or other people in the nutritional or medical field about fasting and its potential, if any, dangers or potential harm it can do to people? Yeah. So for men, we don't see too much coming up, but for women, we see a lot. The biggest thing for younger women is infertility. Well, they told me at 14 that I was going to be infertile due to PCOS and I am going to be 39, probably by the time this podcast airs. <laughs> okay. uh, and I'm, <laughs> I'm expecting my first baby. I did bank some embryos, but I did not struggle with infertility. We got very lucky first embryo transfer, healthy baby boy due between Canadian in an American Thanksgiving sometime. He's going to pop up. Okay. And so I don't know about this infertility thing because if anything, fasting allowed me to balance my hormones mm -hmm. and to get pregnant. And we see this all the time. We actually have one practitioner on our team, Dr. Nadia Padaguana, and we call her our baby maker. She can get anyone pregnant in six months. Doesn't matter. <laughs> She's fabulous. But for a lot of other women, the metabolism slowdown and the loss of lean mass. And, and those are also the concerns concerns for men as well. You know, this is going to take my metabolic rate. This is going to destroy my lean mass. Mm -hmm. You know, there's tons and tons of now RCTs, recent RCTs that go to show that the both of those concerns are not valid. The lean mass thing is kind of funny because we carry an abundance of body fat on us here in North America. And our body fats primarily, like its job is to fuel us when in need. Where Whereas muscle actually plays a functional role. So my colleague, Jason, always uses this great analogy. He can't think of a new one that's better. I can't think of one that's better in 15 years. So we keep running with it. But imagine you're in a cabin in the middle of the woods in winter and there's a snowstorm. It's very cold. Are you going to use the fire logs that are sitting on the porch to make a fire? Or are you going to cut up your coffee table and use that wood to make a fire? 
right? Well, if you've got 100 fire logs pre-chopped on your porch, you're going to use that. So why would you leave 100 logs and ruin your coffee table? So why would you leave all of your body fat, your surplus of body fat and tackle your muscles? The body is not that dumb. The whole concept of body fat and body fat storage was to help us, you know, evolve through those times where food was scarce. One interview I gave when I was living in Toronto, it's February, it's minus 40. That's where Celsius and Fahrenheit meet. And it had been that way for a few weeks and it had been cold for a few months. And this woman in Dallas, where I imagine was quite warm at that time of year, she said like, well, do people just not eat? And I looked out my window and my options would have been bark or snow, right? Like there were not many options. And I imagine I would have to go quite extreme distances in order to hunt and gather animals that weren't hibernating or were easy to track down. So, I mean, we, body fat storage was designed to help us store fuel and be able to retrieve it for later on when we need it. We just never retrieve it. So when we need it, we will retrieve it. We're not going to destroy our muscle maths. And if anything, the human growth hormone produced while we're fasting helps generate or maintain lean mass and even helps generate lean mass. We have a ton of women who have totally reversed their osteoporosis while fasting without doing an abundance of physical activity, just their regular day-to-day chores and eating well. So those are the biggest myths that I see about fasting out there. What about people, it is often said that, you know, you need to eat breakfast every day to fuel energy to get you through the day or to start off the day properly. But certainly with intermittent fasting, you're going to skip breakfast a lot of the time. What do you say to people who worry about that? So if you are not diabetic, you know, we're designed to eat our largest meal midday, Mm -hmm. our second largest meal in the morning and our tiniest meal of the day at the end of the day. So, and that helps us balance our circadian rhythm, all of our hormones. Mm -hmm. So if you can eat breakfast and lunch as your staple meals, you should. The problem is that we're rushing in the morning. I was talking to a client this morning about how North America, we just, we're all set up you know, to, for our demise, Uh, you know, we we're on the go. There's 500 things to do. No one's got, you know, a minute in the morning. So we rely on things like egos, donuts, bagels, these quick and easy things. And these things are all fairly horrific for us hormonally and set us up to be ravenously hungry throughout the day. So, you know, if that's the case, if those are the foods that you can commit to in the morning, then you probably should skip breakfast. But if you can commit to eating some real healthy fats and good protein in the morning, you're better off eating breakfast and lunch as your main meals of the day. The only caveat is if you're diabetic, if you're diabetic, you'll know your blood sugar levels are highest in the morning than they are any other time throughout the day, even when you're fasting. It's called the dawn effect or the dawn phenomenon, where certain hormones that are produced in the morning to wake us up also cause our liver to purge excess glucose. It's in our favor. Our body wants us to burn it off. But why add fuel to a fire in the morning time? 
So for those particular diabetic individuals, we will encourage them actually to skip breakfast until they reach a non-diabetic state. And then once they get to that non-diabetic state, then they could have breakfast and lunch as their main meals of the day. The things we've spoken about today and the significant part of your book talks about fasting or focuses on fasting, intermittent fasting to address problems. Should someone be fasting in general, even if they're, quote unquote, in a healthy state, a man or a woman? Yeah, I think it's great for disease prevention. Fasting induces this physiological phenomenon called autophagy. Autophagy won the Nobel Prize in Medicine back in 2016. And autophagy is this, this state that where our body finds and targets damaged and old proteins and takes them apart and puts them back together in a new and healthy way. So this is extremely promising for pre disease prevention, for neurological diseases, cognitive diseases which are largely neurological in nature, but also cancers and anti-aging in general. My husband, he's a, a drug discovery chemist. And there's a lot of very interesting research going on right now in people trying to develop oncology medications that induce autophagy in certain cells because of its disease-fighting and preventing properties. So it's a very highly sought-after physiological state. So doing periodic fasting can be very beneficial for that type of prevention and just good maintenance. Obviously, a lot of my family and friends have been inspired by the work that I do. And they'll do some of those, you know, 14, 16 or 18 hour fast daily to try to maintain good health. And they'll periodically do something like a 24 or 36 hour fast for some autophagy benefits, some disease prevention. So you can take as if you're healthy, or you've overcome some of the problems you may have encountered, and that's why you engaged in fasting, you should continue it, but you may not have to continue it on the same frequency or intensity as you initially started. Is that fair? Yeah, absolutely. Most people fast intensely for about six months, sometimes a little bit longer, depending on what happens in life during those six months. Mm -hmm. And then I reversed three metabolic conditions and lost over 80 pounds about 12 years ago. And I've maintained that just eating twice a day. Now I have a baby on board. So we are eating three times a day and we're doing well. How long did it take <laughs> you to get yourself back in, you know, what you considered to be good health once you started fasting? Yeah, it was six months and one week, exactly. Okay. Uh, from, from my the date that I started, okay. I... Yeah, to the date I got my my clean villa health okay. and my ultrasound. Yeah. That's a that's, that's <laughs> a pretty good turnaround. Now, your book is about women. Is fasting something that's I assume it can also benefit men as well? What about younger people? Yeah, men, absolutely. We primarily recommend it in adults. Adolescence and childhood's a time for growth and mm -hmm. fasting's anti-growth. But, you know, just for good disease prevention, good health, doing some 14 or 16, 18 hour fast regularly can definitely keep you there. Mm -hmm. And if you're younger and struggling with metabolic illness as well, you can absolutely do fasting at any age therapeutically. So what are some of the challenges people face as they go into fasting? Is it a matter of hunger? Is it a psychological thing? Is it something else? Do they overeat at times when they're not fasting? What do you see as the hurdles to putting fasting into your life in a successful manner? 
Yeah, I'd say there's three primarily. One of them is just mental. We're so used to eating all of the time. And because people are constantly eating around us as well, or just food is so easily accessible, it's always at the forefront of our thoughts as a result. So that can that can be difficult. That's why having a you know, supportive community can be beneficial for that. Number two is that when we first start to fast, we do see a big shift in our hormones that can leave us feeling dehydrated hydrated. And a lot of people will just stick to water when they first start fasting and they won't have things like bone broth or low carb vegetable broth to help rehydrate them. You absolutely should lean into the broths for the first couple of months that you're fasting. This way you won't get headaches, dizziness, feel fatigued. You'll be surprised actually how well you feel. And it helps also control your appetite. And then the third one is just the naysayers in your life. My colleague Jason says the first rule of fast club is not to tell anyone you're fasting because you don't want to hear all of the grievances or concerns about it. So it can be very difficult for a lot of people. My husband fasted when I met him and lost 40 pounds when he started fasting. And it was difficult navigating it at work at first, telling people at first he didn't. And he would say, oh, I ate a big breakfast or, oh, I'm going for an early dinner or I'm just going to work on this in the lab or I don't feel hungry, I'm going to go for a walk. So he used a bunch of these sort of excuses for a while to avoid the conflict and eventually people find out and the conflict does come. And that can be very discouraging. So again, having a supportive community for fasting can make a world of difference. Well, this is, <laughs> this has been great. Is there anything else you want to leave us with just as a, a wrap-up thought? And then I also want you to tell people, again, how they can get in contact with you to learn more about your approach to fasting, your recommendations, or even if you can set up a program for them online or in person. Yeah, absolutely. So the best place to get started is just not to snack. So if you're someone who leans into a handful of almonds at three in the afternoon, have them at lunch, have them at dinner. It's not about eating less food, especially healthy food. It's about eating less often. So just cut out the snacking, start there. I think if we didn't snack outside of meals, we'd have you know 50% less obesity and metabolic disease in our population as it is. So you know, don't necessarily be concerned about doing some of the longer fasts quite yet, if that seems very daunting for you. And then over on our website, thefastingmethod.com, you can learn about the different ways you can work with us. We do have a free blog. There's a great YouTube channel, all of our social profiles, but we do have a, a community that's a monthly or annual subscription with lots of live support meetings, Q&As, information sessions, and courses on fasting. We do intermittent fasting masterclasses periodically once a quarter to help teach people how to fast. And then we do small group coaching and one-on-one coaching for a more personalized approach. You you delivered everything and you really put a lot of clarity into the different types of fasting and what it can do and sort of tackling some of those myths. Thank you so much, John. It, it's been a pleasure and happy fasting to everyone who's listening. Okay. Thanks, Megan. Bye. Bye. Before we move on to health hacks, we wanted to flag our listeners to an exclusive offer from one of our Well Wellbeing community affiliates. Chef V, which makes a range of green juices, shakes, soups, and more, is offering our members 50% off of any of its cleansing and detox products. Now, signing up for Well Wellbeing is easy and free, and it provides members with hundreds of exclusive discounts on health and wellness products and services. 
Just visit us at wellwellusa.com, go to Milton's Discounts on the top menu bar, and the sign-up form will appear. Signing up will take seconds, but the benefits can last for years. Now, let's serve up some health hacks for anyone who is interested in starting or at least exploring intermittent fasting, and this means men and women. The approach may not work for everyone, but there is growing evidence that for many people, it might offer up benefits that go well beyond just losing weight. But if you're interested, first consider the following. One, if you have a medical condition, consult your doctor before starting any fasting program. Two, it's wise to start slowly and build, which probably means intermittent fasting that focuses on a 12-hour break. Three, stay hydrated. Just because you're fasting, it doesn't mean that you can't have various liquids. Four, when you do break a fast, don't gorge, but do make sure you're consuming enough protein. Five, fasting is generally a no-go for pregnant women and children. Six, Exercise is perfectly fine while fasting, so go ahead and do it. And seven, finally, if you don't feel well, stop until you can consult with a nutritionist or a medical professional. Well, that's it for this episode of What the Health. We want to thank our guest, Megan Ramos, for her time and insights, and we want to encourage everyone to check out her latest book, The Essential Guide to Intermittent Fasting for Women. If you want to connect with Megan, you can reach her at thefastingmethod.com. Take care and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to this episode of What the Health. Looking for more feel-good news? Just visit our news site at wellwellusa.com and sign up for our weekly news blast. And if you enjoyed this episode and would like to help support our podcast, please share with others, post it on social media, or leave a rating and review. Until next time, keep yourself on that pathway to a healthier, happier you.